Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend is sponsored by IamLIP.com. Trigger warning. Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend deals with the subject of divorce, child custody, domestic abuse, the attitude of public bodies and the family court. Some people may find the content of this episode distressing. Some episodes contain explicit language. My name is Selena. Who am I? I am white, I am black, I am brown, and I am much, much more. I'm a Christian, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Sikh, I'm a Muslim, I am Catholic, and human to the core. I am every person who did what they were supposed to do, leave and tell. I am every person who was re-abused by the system. I am every person who was disbelieved by the police before I even began to speak my truth. I am every person who faced an unaccountable family court only to be silenced by their orders. I am Anonymous Us and here are our stories. Picking up from the previous episode, when Matthew was attacked by the police and taken off in an ambulance with Mel accompanying him. Because Matthew was in pain, the paramedics administered some morphine, which seemed to settle him down. The police wanted to handcuff Matthew to the stretcher in the ambulance, but the paramedic would not have it, and also refused to let an officer accompany them. Too many people will hinder me if there's an emergency. Thankfully. In the ambulance, Mel was able to give a bit of background to the paramedic, who listened and, most importantly, understood. Once they arrived at hospital, a whole narrative had been created by the police. They were telling the doctors that Matthew had had a psychotic episode. Mel was trying to correct everything, but no one listened to her, because a girl, in a panic, after being attacked by her dad and watching her brother get assaulted by the police, the chances are they may not come across as calm and therefore embody the stereotype of credible. This was Mel's first foray into what a credible victim who should be believed and listened to should look like and in that moment it wasn't her. The doctor in A&E wanted to admit him and medicate him Mel was now even more hysterical. She'd seen those panorama documentaries. Once he went in, he wasn't coming out. However, the paramedic intervened, and thankfully the registrar listened. And the reason I'm saying this about the paramedic is to really drum it home. How often would these situations come down to one professional's personal opinion? And if you think this situation cannot happen to you, Think again. That's why we must highlight and call for change, laws and protocols. That's why training for sectors like the police and doctors is so necessary. Now, it turns out that Matthew had suffered cracked ribs, and believe it or not, that was a relief for Mel. As much as Matthew's ribs should not have been cracked, Mel always says she believes it saved his life. Otherwise, he'd have been put into a police van, into a cell, and the next time she would have seen her brother, it would have been on a mortuary slab. She knew what would have happened next. It would have been a scene from one of those CCTV cameras, 
where eight or so officers are charging into a cell with one distressed person. And the next thing? There's a death in custody. After the incident, Matthew couldn't return to school immediately. He had to stay at home and recover, which put Sally in a predicament with work. Thankfully, Nana said she'd come to stay. And that is how the children got to be known to the school, the welfare officer and pastoral care. Oh, and this point is also essential information. Once again, to show you further down the line, when we get to what happens in the crux of the family court hearing, how circumstances that arise from abuse, that affect the victim survivors and the choices they are able to make or are forced to make to try and protect their children is weaponized by hate-filled defence barristers and punished by magistrates. And as for the police, three years later, after lots of delays, an independent inquiry found that there had been no wrongdoing by any of the officers. Mel always thought that the incident with Matthew and the police would be a catalyst for change, just like Sally thought talking to the police at the GP's clinic would be a catalyst for change. Have you ever seen that scene that often happens in TV programmes where one of the characters becomes hysterical and then another character slaps them and that slap shocks the hysterical character enough to make them calm down, breathe and then re-enter the situation calmer? It was that principle that Mel was banking on. Matthew, being set upon by the police and injured, would surely be the thing that would snap their dad out of his anger and shock him enough to think, shit, what am I doing? And when they didn't hear from him after that, they wondered if this was what had happened. Had he skulked off in embarrassment? On the one hand, that caused much anger for Mel. Why hadn't he tried to get in touch to say sorry? No call to ask after his son. Even his flying monkeys, their own grandma, didn't make contact. But maybe the police had scared him off. Sally had tried to find out. She called the local station, but they said they couldn't tell her anything. Confidentiality. And that was the thing. Them not knowing why their dad had gone silent. Now, on the other hand, in some way, it was a relief not having to deal with him or him turning up. However, even though he wasn't turning up, his presence was still causing problems. It was still unnerving, the silence his lack of presence and contact brought. Sally had never felt safe in her home, and what a shocking way for the children to realise what that felt like. It was too much. They didn't know if they were coming or going. And then Matthew had the biggest meltdown, the one I spoke about in episode 14. Luckily, all of them, including Nana, knew how to handle one of Matthew's meltdowns. But say it had been something they couldn't, or he had hurt himself, or re-cracked one of his ribs. Then what? They were all too scared to take him back to the hospital, since last time the doctors were all up for admitting him under the Mental Health Act. How was this situation fair or healthy? And what was this teaching the children not to trust authority, don't approach anyone if they needed help? And no, 
Sally wasn't teaching them this. The sectors themselves were giving the children this impression. Then, one day, the letters came. The solicitors had got involved, causing a massive shift in their universe. His silence wasn't about him being embarrassed or deciding to leave them alone. No, he had been regrouping. Look at this from the children's point of view. Matthew had been hurt and their dad had shown no care, no remorse. Instead, behind their back, he was plotting to hurt them further. So from that point on, the children started to hate him, really hate him, from the bottom of their souls. What they couldn't forgive was that his love for Matthew should have been enough not to allow for this to go any further. Can any straight, any Kafkas officer, no matter how ill-informed they are, really go down the bitch is trying to turn the kids against me road? And if you have understood anything about the family court within these podcasts, then you know damn well that is what happened. Successfully. In fact, that was the narrative all the sectors went with. So back to Ian getting the solicitors involved and how this affected the children. We know from previous episodes, Sally was getting letters addressed to her and they came in hard and fast. And this was an abuse like no other. It was as if this firm had said to her husband, Step aside. We've got this. We'll take over the abuse from here. Now, watch us go. Mel couldn't believe that he was doing this to them. He wasn't being wronged. He thought he was. And therefore, everything he was subjecting his family to, as far as he was concerned, was their just punishment. But surely, these professional charlatans could see that this wasn't the case and talk some sense into him. Instead, they advised him to inflict the most harrowing post-separation abuse. And no, it's not good enough to say that they only acted on instruction. In truth, the people involved had no emotional connection to the children, only a connection to the big payoff at the end. So what do they care? But the judges should, because these letters were really affecting the quality of the children's lives. Letters would come at the most destructive time. Over many months and years, they targeted Fridays, school holidays, birthdays, Christmas, no event was off limits. And as Mel would go on to find out, not even her GCSEs? But there was something else. Mel noticed that they also tended to coincide with the coursework that would count towards her final GCSE grade. Granted, term times were online, and it was easy to find out any exam dates from the exam board. But the coursework? Mel had already changed the login details to their Google teaching, as all their schoolwork was online. Homework had to be uploaded online. But it continued. She couldn't understand how could this be the case. She remembers telling her teacher and being made to feel stupid, paranoid like she was imagining it. Maybe she was. But the letters continued. Now, Unlike TV shows, where the post arrives first thing in the morning while everyone is sitting around the kitchen table eating breakfast, their post 
would come in the afternoon, so Mel, Matthew and Emily would be the first ones to find them on the mat when they'd get home from school. So they always knew when the solicitor's firm had written to their mum and their stress levels would increase and the worry would start and not good for the year that you're meant to be taking your GCSEs. The children were now experiencing a new kind of stress. Even though they couldn't quantify it in words, they went from waiting for their dad to attack them, come round, bang on the door, threaten them, to now waiting for the law firm to attack them. And trust me, for someone who's been there, the second one, it's far worse. The law firm, in many ways, not just the letters, were able to execute the most severe, destructive and soul-destroying post-separation abuse by proxy with such precision that it kept them within the parameters of their professional rules and regulations to a fraction of a millimetre that it didn't look bad in court. So they got away with it. I have seen the most hideous, unprofessional, potentially illegal, and if not, it should be, behaviour by solicitors and barristers, with judgistrates ignoring it and turning a blind eye, or going along with it, even joining in. Actually, no, in many cases, actually joining in. Sally went through 11 judgistrates. Not one acknowledged or dealt with it. We also know these law firms have their governing body, the solicitor's regulatory body, supporting them, excusing them and turning a blind eye. In all the years of being a Mackenzie friend and support worker, in the legal industry, post-separation abuse, post-separation abuse by proxy, fanning the flames and encouraging abusive litigation is perfectly acceptable. Victim survivors like Sally and her children were fair game to that profession and sector. And because everybody within the family law sector supports this and claims that there is nothing untoward happening, the victim survivor ends up looking paranoid. They're out to get me. Just like Mel looked paranoid at the hospital with Matthew, looked paranoid in front of her form tutor when she said it felt like they were deliberately targeting her coursework schedule. Trust me when I say legal industry gaslighting it's prevalent within the family court and the legal industry. As we already know, Sally wrote to the law firm to ask them to hold off until Mel's GCSEs were over. Now, how does that not make her the good parent, the safe parent? But as we know, she got told off by the court for not wanting to engage. Sally wrote to the SRA, the solicitor's regulatory body, and again, they responded that no conduct was broken. After the family court and the SRA exonerated the law firm, that was it. All bets were off, no holds barred, and legally, they were a dead family walking. Because then, several months later, Mel, in her own right, was also fair game. Let me explain. When the legal letters first arrived, they wanted to know about Sally's wages and what her mum, the children's nana, was giving them. And not in one letter. They split it up into the tiniest requests and sent multiple letters over months. They also wanted to know about Matthew, his breakdown and his educational needs. Again, each tiny piece of information was requested in separate letters over months. 
It all came in dribs and drabs, letter after letter not letting up. And then, one day, the oddest request came. They wanted to know about the origins of the children's bank accounts. They wanted to know where the money had come from. But why, Sally thought, the children's accounts had nothing to do with the marital assets. Was this some way of them manipulating the child maintenance? Were they going to argue that the kids had money in trust? But the thing that worried her the most was what would they say about the fact that Mel's account had already been accessed and funds withdrawn. Sally wrote back and said the children's bank accounts had nothing to do with the marital assets and wasn't a part of the divorce or its finances. Now, before I continue, let me give you some background about the accounts. A few years previous, the children's nana, Sally's mum, had decided to sell her big house and move somewhere smaller and more manageable. She then decided to divide the money. It was a decent amount between her three children, Sally and her two siblings. Because as far as Nana was concerned, it was a case of, use it when you need it, why wait till I'm dead? However, Nana went one step further with Sally. Her share would be split between her children and put into an account for them which they would not be allowed to access until they were older. It was for uni, deposits for their own home, even travel the world if they wanted to. The truth is, Nana had concerns about Ian and his control. She noticed how Sally would act if she ever came to visit, how she acted around money, and that's why she didn't give it to Sally. But here's the thing, Nana did not divide the other two children's share between their children. She just asked them to go along with it which Sally's siblings agreed to. Oh, and there's another reason for these finer details of this story. Because further down the line, when we reach what happens in the family court, a victim survivor and children being helped out by family in the interim will be used against them. In fact, everything will be used against them. Even breathing will be used against them. So Nana opened an account which the children could only access once they were 18 and Nana was the signatory. So, if they ever wanted to withdraw some money before then, they would need her signature. That way, she could ensure they didn't waste it while they were young. But, after a few years, Nana got diagnosed with early-onset dementia, and touch wood, so far, with medication. Things hadn't gotten too bad. But one thing Nana did worry about was her being the sole signatory. So, she decided to add Sally to the account in case suddenly things changed so the kids could access their money. Now the one thing Nana told Sally, that it was best not to tell Ian. And as well-meaning as that was, I don't think anyone realised how it would affect Sally if he ever found out, which he did. Because when Sally got put on as a signatory, she had to take her ID and although the children's bank account statements went to Nana's address, and they had asked especially for no statements or letters to go to Sally's address, guess what the bank did? Of course, they sent statements of the children's accounts to Sally. And you can guess what Ian did. How dare his wife think she could look after the accounts for his children? Who the fuck did she and her bitch of a mother think they were? And, after that, Ian insisted Sally take her name off the children's accounts and put his on. He frog-marched her to the bank, and, of course, 
they didn't need to consult Nana, because now Sally had equal control, and that was it. He had control of the children's bank accounts. But it was still the children's money, and until that point, he had never denied the children. He just didn't like her having control and a say. But he would never touch the children's money, because how would he explain it to them? And he didn't, until the solicitors came along. Now they were in all-bets-off territory. He'd gone to the bank and cleared the accounts. He was allowed. And again, there was no law. No one prepared to act on the law, if there was one. But as I said earlier, he couldn't clear Mel's. She had taken control of hers. Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend is sponsored by IamLIP.com. If you are struggling with any of the issues discussed in today's episode, please go to www.IamLIP.com where you can receive further information and help. Disclaimer. The stories mentioned in this episode are fictional accounts based on and adapted from real life experiences. Due to the repetitive nature of the family court, any similarities to any other cases are purely coincidental. <laughs>